Hi there, welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards with pureandsimplebible.com. Very thankful for your presence. And I'm so excited to start a really, really interesting, encouraging, and helpful mini-series with a brother from Bakersfield, California named Wade Branch. And it's called The Guilt Gauge. Now, this is a visual that you really need to see. We're going to talk about it a lot. and We're going to talk about worldly sorrow and worldly guilt versus godly sorrow, godly guilt. But the visual that Wade has for this study is something that we're going to reference a lot in the study. And so if you have the ability to go to the website and look at the image, I think it's going to help you visualize as we discuss this together. Let's jump straight into the series, shall we? First question I have been asking guys lately is just to tell me who they are, because even though I might know you, some of my listeners might not. So why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself, where you're from, and uh, all that good stuff. All right. Well, my name is Wade Branch, and I'm originally from Oakdale, California. And recently, about two years ago, I moved to Bakersfield, California, where I married my wife, Taylor. So been down here about two years in, I guess, Southern California, still in the Central Valley. But I currently am a math teacher at a local high school, and in the summers I work construction. So those are my trades and uh, doing what I can for the Lord's work here in Bakersfield and uh, do everything I can to get outside a little bit. So Great. Um, now, let's see. We know each other. You, you came out and held a a meeting for us, right? Yeah, I was kind of an intern in that meeting. <laughs> <laughs> you are our young, for those who don't maybe understand uh, the gospel meetings that Valley Parkway does in the fall, we, we were actually Denton County when you came, but we've changed our name since then because we moved. Um, Valley Parkway invites a senior preacher and then a young man or two, young young preacher to, to come and hold a meeting for us and Wade was one of those guys a couple years ago. I don't know what I'm going to title this podcast yet because I'm very confused by, I don't even know how to pronounce it, Parasoteros Lipe. <laughs> and uh, you might be speaking in a tongue with that title. So why don't you go ahead and explain uh, why you have that on your title slide? So that was up there really maybe a little vainly as an intention getter for uh, the audience when I, I when I originally gave it at, at church. So uh, the word Parisoteros lupe is just the Greek word for excessive sorrow. So that word excessive sorrow is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. And in that passage, it's used to talk about a man in, his, in a state that they were being careful not to put him into excessive sorrow. So that's, that's really the, 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 the core reason I wanted to give this study when I originally prepared it. So uh, that's where that word comes from. Now, in the study, um, you're saying it's excessive sorrow, but you compare kind of godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Are, are both of those excessive? Is, is that where, you're, where you go with this, or is it this third type of sorrow that's excessive that's kind of independent of those two? Oh, good question. So that the excessive sorrow is not a sorrow that God wants us to have. So there's some passages you alluded to that that talks about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And 
and that excessive sorrow is is one part of the ungodly sorrow that we can have and uh and there's a balance i think we can strike in the in our sorrow quote unquote that god wants us to have you have this thing called the health of conscience function it's like a guilt gauge and for people who can't see it um Maybe you can describe it as you go along, but why don't you you talk about the guilt gauge? Where'd you come up with this and, and what's its purpose? Yeah, sure. So this guilt gauge, if you're looking at it, it looks kind of like a pressure gauge. So if you look at a an air compressor, an air compressor has a has a pressure gauge and the readings don't necessarily um, go from bad all the way to good. The pressure gauges often go from too low to too high to somewhere right in the, in between in the sweet spot. Uh-huh, and, okay. and I formed this guilt gauge because guilt is one of those things that I've had to really work on harnessing in my life. It is, it is something that I found through this study uh, to be something that God has an opinion about. And in this gauge, I've labeled it, I've labeled it as you can feel too guilty sometimes and in the other right. extreme, you can feel not guilty enough. And so I created this guilt gauge with with this spectrum because even if we are kind of in a in a good place with our conscience, there's a place in the middle where God wants us to be where guilt leads me to repent, but I leave my guilt at the cross when I repent. Why did you choose that one instead of maybe... Uh, a gauge where it just goes from you know bad to good, where it's just you you start off at zero and you go to a hundred percent, and there's only one side that's good and the other side is bad. It seems like yours, you've you know there's that like you said there's a sweet spot in the middle. I'm just curious about your use of example. Yeah, so with many of the things God's many of the things that God commands of us, there is there's a balance that we can strike between going far one way and far the other way. And there's a place in our lives where we can be feeling guilty, even when we're not doing wrong. Sometimes the conscience can become a little bit maladapted to where we feel too much guilt, but then it can feel, we can be at a point where uh, I don't feel guilty at all, even when I'm doing wrong. There's a passage that describes that as, as a a conscience that is seared with a hot iron. It's like a conscience that is numb. And, but there's somewhere in between to where you can be, I can feel a little bit guilty, but I don't do enough about it. Or I can feel, I can feel guilty, you know, even though I've made my wrongs right. So the, the gauge says that I'm not going to go really too far in either direction and that there's a healthy way for me to use the tool. Does that answer the, the question? Oh, it does. It does. And I'll do my best for our listeners who want a visual of this to put it on my website. So if you go to pureandsimplebible.com backslash podcast, find this episode and I'll try to copy and paste the visual. Cause to me, it kind of looks like a rainbow, but it goes from left to right. It goes red, orange, green, orange, red. So uh, I saw rainbow earlier, but I really do get what you're talking about with the pressure gauge. Cause I think about my, uh, air tank that I have in my garage and I've, I I don't want too much pressure in it or it's going to blow up. And if I have no pressure, it's no good. So you're right. There's, there's 
a good balance in the middle, like you called it the sweet spot. Now, you do make the point that this is not a salvation state. So uh, can you explain why we shouldn't be using this gauge in that way? Yeah, so we're going to see that that guilt is really a tool for our use to to be better Christians and ultimately to live the way God wants us to live. Now, just because we're not using a tool effectively, it doesn't mean that we are you know, not saved. And that's, for example, if you are feeling guilt, even when you're not doing anything wrong, or maybe you've made your wrongs right, and you're still feeling that, that guilt that weighs you down, there's passages of scripture that talk about that. And we're not here to talk about how, you know, you're going, you're, you're in a condemned state because you're feeling guilty. So that's, that's a situation where this, just because you're not in a healthy conscience state, it doesn't mean that, that you are not in the right place with God. Right, right. Well, where do we get started in this guilt gauge? How do you, you know, in your presentation, when you give this at church, or maybe when you're talking with someone, what scripture do you use and um, how do you begin? Yeah, so it was actually kind of difficult to to get a good frame for talking about this because I've had these things in my mind and I've worked through these things, but hadn't really had a clear passage to address the issue of the conscience. But recently I was studying in 1 Corinthians 5 and I noticed that there is kind of this whole spectrum of sorrow, the Bible calls it, or uh, some translations say guilt. And so 1 Corinthians 5 beginning in verse 1 is where we'll pick up in our study to introduce this conversation. Okay. Uh, so do you want to read some of these scriptures? Where should we go and, and how could our listeners follow along? Yeah, sure. Let's. I'll go ahead and read the first two verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So it says there, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and sexual immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, namely that someone has his father's wife. It says, you have become arrogant and not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Okay. If, I have, if I've never read this before, uh, what would you explain it to me? I guess in context, but then also about the guilt gauge. Right. So context, as, we, as anyone who wants to study the Bible seriously, context is everything. And from the kind of the... 20,000 foot view. This is a letter written by Paul to the church at Corinth. And one of the first topics he brings up in this letter to the church there is this error that they're living in. And he brings up this specific error in verse one. He says that there is sexual immorality among them. And really it's, he's like, it's, this is some bad stuff. Like people, people even outside the church don't even dabble in this, this mess. Mm -hmm. So he's dealing with a a type of sin dealing with sexual immorality. And he says, namely that someone has his father's wife. So he's writing to this church to critique and to really to criticize pretty heavily how they're handling this sin. And so what's specifically in, in verse two uh, is going on here with uh, kind of the premise of the guilt gauge that you've brought up? Yeah. So in verse two, it starts out by saying you have become arrogant and not mourned. So really Paul's calling them out by saying, 
you you should be mourning. And when the Bible talks about mourning, it's a lot of times from the perspective of being ashamed and saddened by the sin that has gripped them. And and really that's that's the attitude we should have towards sin because of sin's great consequences that it brings with it. And he's saying you've become arrogant, so you're not you're not feeling bad about it. You're 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 like you're puffed up, you're cocky, you're 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 so big that this doesn't even affect you. Right. And he's saying you should be mourning about this. Right. And you make a note here that even though this is a very intense situation, it's like you pause to to bring out how uh, we don't always handle church discipline the same. Why don't you take us down that note real quick? Yeah, so that's a deep rabbit hole. I don't know if we're just going to stick our <laughs> hand down it. <laughs> but essentially, I just wanted to make at least the, the point that if you're someone who's new to the church, Paul's not coming in and grabbing the first seedling by the head and saying, hey, you know, you're messing up. He's walking right. into a situation where there's a culture of undealt with sin. And and it's it's implied that this is kind of a lifestyle. It's just the way things are going. Uh, and this person is a brother in the church who is living mm-hmm. this way. Mm-hmm. And it's going to tell us more about how he's really causing a lot of problems in the church. But this isn't necessarily someone who has just come to know Christ, who's come to know the gospel and who's working on changing their life. Because right, that is right. that is a huge part of our development process is being what we talk about often as a babe in Christ, someone who's just learning, just starting to understand and think like a Christian to where you can even see these things that you may be doing wrong or have the perspective on your sin or on your speech. Maybe it's your, it could be any number of things that a young Christian might need to work on. And this isn't necessarily coming in hard on a, on a new Christian. Right. I think about as well how a new Christian who's excited about the Lord, excited about service, is also excited about doing the right thing. And so they, they would not want to look, they, they wouldn't look at this passage, or they shouldn't rather, look at this passage with themselves in mind, because this is somebody who is, like you've said, they have uh, no guilt in doing something that they're proud about their sin. And that doesn't, to me, describe a babe in Christ who's wanting to please the Lord, you know, for the first time. Right. Um, now, you said that Paul gives a reality check. So you've got this person that really, according to verse 2, uh, you know, you've become arrogant. You've not mourned uh, instead. So th- he continues in verse 3 with what you call this reality check. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, sure. So verse three says, for I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. So the reality check that that Paul is coming to give them is that he's saying, man, I'm not even there, but but I've already judged this. And, And sometimes I think the word judged is there's kind of it's a it's a hot word. You know, what do you do with judgment? And Paul comes in saying, you know, it's not like I'm coming in uh, to figure out, you know, should I judge this? He's saying, no, I've already judged this. This is wrong. This is a clear thing that we need to handle. And so the reality that they were living in is that this isn't a big deal. You know, I don't know if they were thinking that that uh, this guy will be fine. He'll grow out of it. I don't know what their perspective was, 
But Paul came to give the reality check that this is serious because sin will lead to eventually eternal condemnation if we don't if we don't make an effort to change our life and to repent. Okay, so if Paul is waking them up and and we see it like that that pressure gauge, they're moving out of red and into orange. Um, you talk about how in verse four and five we haven't read it yet, so obviously we need to do that. But verse four and five, Paul kind of reveals his purpose in this. What is his goal? Yeah, let's go ahead and read that. So it says, "In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit." With the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to turn such a person over to Satan for the destruction of his body. Okay, so this is the whole purpose right here. So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So that's uh-huh. that's the answer to your question. That what Paul is coming to do is to help this man be saved. And that noble intent, right? So sometimes yeah. we don't think about the noble intent behind church discipline that but it's intended for their benefit and, and it may hurt but it's for their benefit is that correct exactly yeah every time that, that any kind of church discipline is is administered it's ultimately uh, like it says in another passage that chastening is supposed to be for the later betterment and and this is exactly the same if if we ever engage in church discipline having the right attitude toward church discipline that Paul says here in verse five is really what will solve so many of the problems we run into with church discipline. So having the attitude that I want to save this person's soul and coming into it with that approach is going to solve so many of the questions that we may have when we're trying to deal with sin, because Sin can make things hairy, especially in a congregation where people have known each other for a long time. They're close, maybe. Maybe they're even related. But if Mm -hmm. we come into it with the perspective that I want to save this person's soul, hopefully we will have kindness toward them and love toward them, but also the motivation to act. I like that. You know, there's, uh, I think about some other scriptures Romans 16, 17, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Those are just a couple. But uh, there, there, are, there are multiple reasons for this discipline. And, you know, you've highlighted from 1 Corinthians 5 the very personal direct reason uh, this person, their soul's at stake. And uh, I think sometimes in our culture, we don't like confrontation because... You know, it just makes us feel icky. But I think something good to remember is that uncomfortable truth is still truth. Right. And that we have a duty to, I mean, I want to go to heaven. And if I'm not going to make it, I want you or anyone in the church to help me get there and get that, you know, plank out of my eye. Right. Uh, Just briefly, uh, for our, our listeners, maybe they haven't thought about church discipline before. Um, you know, church discipline is also to protect the church. And I think that's what Paul's really shocked about here is that these people have not helped save this brother's soul. They've just kind of laid down and, and let it happen. And, and so he's upset with them for not protecting the church's integrity. And then also I think about how we're protecting our influence in the community. 
and how this community didn't even practice such evil things. And, and you know, he, he references that, that even the, the Gentiles don't right. do the, what you guys are doing. So what a, I think you, you may have used the term hairy earlier, but what a hairy process discipline can be when yeah. you've got all these facets going on, right? Right. Well, I mean, just like you said, if if we're supposed to be an organization that, that shows God's love to the world and also his holiness to the world, what is it going to look like if, if how are we going to have influence on the world if they're looking in and saying, man, I don't want to be a part of that. Now, right. we're not going to be perfect. That's not the point. The whole mm-hmm. point of this letter is repentance. So that's that's the motivation. Yeah. And you can't have repentance unless you know what you're being convicted about. And that's right. missing a lot of times in, in our conversations is that people are just expecting us that, that we're like a, a get-along club. We're just right. all going to get along. But you got to have uh, the commands of Jesus Christ leading the way. This man is already holding on to Satan. And so it's not like we're somehow casting him ourselves into the demons and Satan. It's right. we've got to let go and we we got to separate ourselves from this person who's holding on to Satan and his ways. That's an excellent point is that we're not, God has not tasked us to be the judge as though we get to choose when someone is faithful and they're not. The man's already proved himself unfaithful. That's an excellent point. You in verse six kind of uh, transition into this idea that the church was supposed to be acting and they weren't. And so my question is, why is an action not good? You know, they didn't do anything bad per se. So, you know, why are you harping on this? Right. Well, that is, that starts out as a big idea that we can, we can understand from several levels and starting from kind of a, a big picture and, the world we live in never stays the same. There's scriptures that talk about how in Ecclesiastes 10 verse 18, because of laziness, the building decays and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. It's really kind of a fact of life that if you leave something without attention, that things are going to decay. Things are going to get worse. Things do not just stay the same or get better when you leave them alone. So, Inaction itself is never the answer if you want to maintain a yard or if you want to keep your car looking squeaky clean and polished. Inaction just doesn't work. Okay, so starting from a big level, a big perspective, that's true. And then when we get into the church, the the Bible talks about how we are a body and our body is not going to be a whole at whole healthy function unless all of the members and we being the members are compared to the eyes, the ears, the hands, our body and the church body will never be healthy if all of its members are not taking action and working together. So it is never an indication of a healthy body if, you're, if your arm is hanging limp. So whether that's right. by not taking action in a disciplinary situation when something needs to happen, or even as other passages talk about, uh, a a joint that is just not working, not involved. So when we kind of get that big picture all the way down to this specific situation, the problem is is listed in verses 6 through 8, why this is specifically a problem in this context. And the problem is sin will corrupt the church if they do not deal with it. And so let's read those verses. You mind reading verses 6 through 8? Sure. 
Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old lump so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let's celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, I'm seeing your slides, so I kind of get where you're going because you've got different colors in your Bible reading. But somebody who just listened to that may have uh, got a craving for some sourdough bread. And <laughs> so I want to know, why did this scripture just talk about leaven? And you know, what is leaven in the Bible? Why is it used in this passage? Help me understand. Right. So in verse 6, he talks about a little leaven leavening the whole lump of dough. And many people who, who cook, who bake, understand that the concept of leaven is that you have a leavening agent that you introduce to your, your flour, your whatever your dough is. You can have a flat dough, but whenever you introduce a leavening agent like, um, like yeast, you introduce that, that chemical reaction. What happens is the, the yeast reacts with the bread and it creates a chemical reaction that produces carbon dioxide. And that carbon dioxide is what fills a bread, fills a loaf of bread with air. And so what he's saying is it, don't you know that only a little bit of that leaven, you only need a little bit of that yeast in there and it will make the whole lump of dough rise up. So he's making the point that, that this leaven and specifically that leaven is referring to sin throughout the Bible. Yeah. Uh, leaven is a picture of sin or yeast is a picture of sin and its ability to, especially in this situation, to kind of spread and contaminate the, the dough. So then let me see if I can take what has just been explained and apply it to this context. There, there is a man who had no guilt, uh, even though he was doing what was wrong. There is a church that perhaps they felt guilt, but they took no action. And what you're suggesting, rather what the scriptures are suggesting, is that the man who had no guilt will eventually contaminate the group with the sin that he's engaged in. Is that what's going on here? Exactly. What's the, I guess, encouragement at the end of this, this section of the scripture? Yeah, there's a really cool picture that's created here. So in verse eight, he said, he kind of turns it into a positive, turns it on a positive note. And that's the beauty of the scriptures is whenever God calls us out, you might say, he, he always includes a U-turn. He doesn't leave us with a dead end. He leaves us with a U-turn so that we can turn around and repent and get on the right track. And in verse 8, he says this, Therefore, let's celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he's now making some connections for them back to the Old Testament. And in verse at the end of verse 7, he talked about, he said, for Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. Right. I saw that. I was curious if it was, you know, Passover oriented. Right. So we later learn in John chapter one, verse 29, when John sees Jesus coming, he says, behold, the lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the world. Now, 
that has a direct connection to the Passover in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, they celebrated the Passover feast because of their delivery, their deliverance from Egypt. When the children of Israel, God's people, were enslaved in the land of Egypt, they had, they had all of the, the, the Israelites under the thumb of, his, of Egypt. God determined to destroy all the firstborn of Egypt as a way to get his people out of Egypt and to save them. And as part of that plan, God told them, you need to have everyone sacrifice a lamb and you're going to put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of your home. And what God is going to do, this is kind of shocking, God sent an angel, the destroying angel, to go throughout Egypt and kill the firstborn of every family. Now, that's a whole other conversation of severity in itself, but the Passover, that was called the Passover, when they would put the door on the, put the blood on the doorpost, the death angel would pass over that house because he saw that they had the blood of the lamb on that house. And so the angel would pass over and not destroy in that home. Mm -hmm. So the beauty of this connection is when you fast forward to the New Testament, Christ here in verse six says, for Christ is our Passover that has been sacrificed. The gravity of this situation is, is even increased when you look back to when Jesus was crucified. He was crucified the week of Passover. So Christ truly is our Passover. He has determined to sacrifice his own blood, to give his own life, so that we would not have to face the destruction of sin that the Egyptians faced in the Old Testament. Christ has become our Passover lamb so that we can be saved. And that is the greatest, let's move forward, that I can imagine. It seems like this Christ is the Passover expression, which is very New Testament, very gospel-oriented, then pivots into this verse 8 where we're getting rid of the old leaven, where we're, we're putting on the new. Tell us about this this verse and God's expectations for repentance. Right. So the, the principal thing that God wants out of us in repentance is he wants us to turn from our way and to turn to agree with his way. So it's, it really is just a U-turn. It's going from the way I want to go and turning to God's way. Now, God wants that to be from the heart. He wants it to be from the core of our being that we confess our sin to him and we make it right and we change. Now in this situation, uh, as we, as we try to repent and as this man, he wanted this man to repent, that can come with different implications. So it starts with making it right with God. And mm -hmm. that's first and foremost, we, we change our heart. We get right with God and in repentance, sometimes you have to make it right with, with others as well. And for example, if I wronged someone, I don't just ask God to forgive me and then tell that person they need to move on from it because I am forgiven from God. I need to also sometimes make it right with other people. So in this situation, since this was a public church issue type sin, uh, repentance would have been met with some 
he would have needed to make this right with more than just God. Right. But what if I was embarrassed? What if, you know, this is going to be really personal? You know, why, why, why can't I just, you know, pray to God and it's over with, you know, right. instead of interacting with people that potentially that's going to get really awkward. Right. So that's, that's probably one of the toughest parts is having conversations that leave really even the people who hear about it uncomfortable, but that's part of the process that's going to weed out that leaven. Once we talk about something and get it in the open, we can, we can work through it. The worst problems it seems are those that are try that are, that we try to sweep under the rug because uh-huh. when we don't shine the light on something, we can't really see it for what it is. The beauty of God's plan is that we can talk about something. We can confess our sins and if, if the other people in the body of Christ have the mentality and the, the love of God to have that forgiveness that is asked, then there can be a growing experience where the leaven is purged out, the sin is, is uh, gotten rid of, the body of Christ grows closer together, and the, the, the magnitude of, of God's, the importance of God's plan and our our willingness to stay away from things that he calls sinful, that's all raised as we work together instead of sweeping right. under the rug and moving on. Yeah, you've done a brilliant job. Obviously, the Holy Spirit did the brilliant job with 1 Corinthians 5, but I think your answer to that question of alluding back to the leaven is you can't just let the leaven linger because it leavens the whole lump. I've never been involved whenever somebody had secret sin and they wanted to make it right. I've never been involved uh, in in a, either a conversation, a study, an intervention, whatever you want to call it, where they didn't need to make it right with someone. They had to reveal it. Maybe it was to their partner. Maybe it was to a friend. But they needed to to make something right. And I've it's the hardest thing is just bringing it up. But once you bring it up and you kind of shed light on it, suddenly there's just a tremendous sense of relief with it. So I'm really glad that you said what you did because some people get embarrassed and they think, oh man, they're going to judge me or they're going to look at me differently. Well, right. certainly there may be some of that, but the 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 strength that's built off of that relationship where you are vulnerable, it really just breathes life into the relationship. Now, we're still on that left side um, of the spectrum, so to speak. And you've talked about how we need to make it right with God. If you, if you have no guilt or if you feel guilt, but you've, you're, you're not taking any action. So you have to respond with repentance towards God, towards others. But uh, you, you take a moment before we maybe move to the other side of the guilt spectrum to maybe speak to those who are thinking, well, I've gone too far, or I just, like, I don't, I don't feel any guilt at all. And so I'm, I'm listening to your presentation and nah, it's not for me. So what would you say to somebody like that? Right. Yeah. I've, I've had people talk to me about that where, you know, I was working on sharing the gospel with them and I've had people who were, man, were weeks into this process and they're like, man, I love this. I, I feel Maybe I feel better than I ever have. I am realizing the beauty of God's plan and, you know, things like that. But then one day they say something like, 
you know, I just don't think I can do this. I think I'm too far gone. Hmm. And a lot of times they'll say things like, I really, I, you know, for a while I liked this and, and it doesn't mean I still don't like it, but I really, I just don't feel guilty. And I think I'm just too far gone yeah. and I'm too hardened because I can keep sinning in these ways and I don't feel guilty. And so that, what am I going to do? Like, right. it's like they're cornering you as the person who's trying to show them the gospel with this problem of, you know, I, I don't feel any guilt. Well, mm. in first Timothy chapter four, we're told that we can have a conscience that becomes hardened. That is true. But in Hebrews nine, verse 13, it says this for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. So he's talking about the old law and the sacrifices that were made and how it, it helped uh, sanctify them. Verse four, verse 14, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the Holy mm. Spirit kind of answers that question in a in a long sentence of, of the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit without blemish. He's like, he's he's really hyping this up to say, how much more do you think that God can cleanse your conscience from dead right. works? The one who feels they're too far gone, the Holy Spirit saying that God can cleanse your conscience. That's that's a powerful for somebody who's holding on to a lot of guilt. Right. So we can we can change some of the actions we have, but we can feel a little bit powerless sometimes over our, our own mind or over over our own conscience. And that's the beauty of if you're coming into this all this stuff with this feeling of too far gone, that's where the beauty of that's where we have to realize who we're dealing with. We're right. doing with the almighty creator who formed the, the chemical combustion that is our brains. And if he can design that, he can cleanse our conscience and he can help us change because yeah. it may take time. And oftentimes it does for us to, to change our lives and to change our minds in the process. But God has the power. He is the almighty creator and the great physician, and he can cleanse our consciences. So we don't have to worry about being too far gone. You know, this is probably the more traditional view of guilt. Uh, just that, that we think people who've done wrong should be guilty, but then their, their conscience gets seared and they don't feel it. So we've got to let them know that if you're on this side of the guilt spectrum, that you need to repent and change and do the do what is right, but but in your study, you you kind of transition out of this uh, first letter to the Corinthians into the second letter of the Corinthians, and if people can visualize the guilt gauge or the guilt spectrum, and that little needle that's on the left side, suddenly it's zinged all the way over to the right, and we're still talking about people who are experiencing extreme sorrow in an unhealthy way. But now I like to think whenever I was looking through your notes, this is probably the more 
realistic type of guilt that that many people in the church struggle with, and that is feeling guilt when you shouldn't be holding on to it. Too much guilt, I should say. And so I'm curious, um, in, in your slides, when you leave 1 Corinthians 5, where do you go and what do you use to help explain this other side of the guilt gauge? Yeah, so when you hop over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is later kind of, he's kind of creating the balance that God wants us to have. And he's, so he's creating a bookend with this church discipline. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, he starts to, he starts to uh, provide the bumper on the other side. And that is where we're going to stop today. We were on one side of the guilt gauge, and now we're moving to the other side of the guilt gauge. And one of the things that I really love about this, and I said it in the episode, if you were listening to earlier, was that there's extremes on either side. And it's the middle, this balance of understanding that you do have guilt whenever you sin, but also the forgiveness of letting guilt go. That balance is what really makes this an effective illustration for me, and I hope it does for you too. So we've considered one extreme. We're going to come back next week. We're going to consider the second extreme. And I invite you to come back and continue to listen to this conversation with Brother Wade and myself. So until then, you can go to the website. I say it every week, and I'll say it again. There's a lot of stuff for you to use and download absolutely free. Check it out. Until then, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember, God loves you very much. And I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you. Well, his real was in some trouble.